I went to work one day. I got off about four or five and he wasn't there. And I, I, I drove around for a while. I drove around like two hours looking for him. I couldn't find him. And that's when I contacted MPD. That's James Jackson, a 48-year-old civil engineer talking about the time a few years ago when his dad went missing. He'd recently become his dad's caregiver and was still learning how to navigate this new role. There are a lot of us who could one day be facing the reality that the people who took care of you for most of your life now rely on you to take care of them. In this episode of All This Stuff I Have To Do, we're talking about what that experience is like and getting some practical tips from a licensed therapist on how to make sure you're not neglecting yourself while caring for others. If you're old enough, you'll remember this. You just press this button and speak into the air and... I'm having chest pain. I'm calling paramedics and your family, Mr. Miller. I've fallen and I can't get up. We're sending help immediately, Mrs. Fletcher. See? Protect yourself with Life Call and you're never alone. I remember seeing the Life Call commercial on TV in the 90s and I have to admit, I thought it was funny. When I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about getting older or having heart issues or needing help to move around. And I also had no concept of my parents needing help. Back then, they solved all my problems and had all the answers. I needed them. Now, fast forward about 30 years, let's be clear, I still need them. In addition to that, though, their mortality and mine are things I think about a lot more often. James Jackson, who we heard from at the top of the episode, was adjusting to seeing his dad, Jesse, in a new way back in 2016. In this interview, we talked about making the mental and logistical switch from son to son and caregiver. Before we get into it, though, a quick note. When we recorded, I was recovering from COVID, and so my quarantine period had ended, but my voice was still struggling. What happened in 2016? June 9th, 2016, my mom passed. After that, I'll just... No more than actually. It seemed like it happened uh, almost immediately. He started showing signs of, um, he just couldn't remember the simple stuff that he always could. It was like he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't really normal. He wasn't, you know, the dad I've known all my life. If he went to the store that day, he didn't know whether he went to the store that day. Did he show any signs of dementia or Alzheimer's before your mom passed? No, he was actually my mom's caregiver. And she had, she was in early stages of Alzheimer's. And he was taking care of her. Mm-hmm. And he was actually still going back and forth to work while, you know, he was taking care of her. What was his job? Uh, he was a roofer. James's dad, Jesse, was 75 years old then, but not fully retired yet. He'd just go back out, you know, every blue moon uh, when he wanted to do something or got Tired of being around the house. And he was doing the occasional project up until they had an issue with neighbors in their assisted living community. There was a group of people over there that that were trying to take advantage of my mom and he found out about it. And so he pretty much gave it all up and retired. What James didn't know was that he would soon be making similar decisions about his dad. After his mom passed away in June 2016, Jesse's memory loss set in. And within a year's time, 
A specific incident in May 2017 let him know just how much the memory loss had progressed. I was staying downtown Memphis, and um, he was still staying at his living home over in Raleigh, and I'd bring him over to my house sometimes. I went to work one day. I got off about four or five, and he wasn't there. After driving around downtown Memphis for two hours and not finding him, James contacted the Memphis Police Department. And so we searched. They brought out the dogs. The dogs tracked him. I went and got a set of his pajamas that he wore. They tracked him to the uh, store, tracked him around the apartments. He was actually circling the apartments trying to find which apartment. A big storm came. I looked endlessly. I mean, I was looking the entire time. I got my family involved, my brother involved. My cousin worked for Shelby County Sheriff. Um, The second day of, they got involved. And sheriff deputies sent uh, some sheriffs down there and some uh, volunteers to help. I drew up flyers. We plastered flyers all downtown to North Memphis, to South Memphis. All the way, you know, all around every place we could. I thought that he would be... I was looking and we put a picture up. We called the news media. We had, he was on the news. At the end of the second day of searching, at around 11 o'clock that night, MPD called. They had found him, uh, a manager at McDonald's at Airways and Lamar. From that, you learned that he needed to stay where it was familiar if, to him? If he stayed with me, then I couldn't leave him there at the house. He couldn't, I couldn't leave him unattended because if he walked away from there, then he wouldn't, uh, there were times that, you know, when I was, was there, he'd try to, he was going to walk off, you know, he figured he knew where he was. 2017, you know, that wasn't, you know, that was just what was to come. I mean, a warning of what's, what was coming. Uh, I mean, but I, I didn't know how bad it was, you know, going to get. And when you say that, what do you mean? I didn't know that, you know, uh, my dad would get to the point where, he, he could hold a conversation, but the sentences would be broken. I mean, everything, uh, it would just be, everything would be a simple phrase. I mean, or, you know, he'd talk about something that happened back in 19, you know, 70, 19, early 70s. And, but, and, and blend it right in with something that happened in the 90s or then go back, get back to, you know, when he was a kid. How fast did it happen? It happened fast. According to his doctor, it, it, he, is, he went to stage four really quick. So that's the doctor said that he's in stage four? Yeah, stage four Alzheimer's. It was pretty, you know, it was progressive. He looked at normal patients. It takes about 10 years. But my dad's progressed pretty quick. When did the doctors say he was in stage four? That would be 2020. James spent the next two years going to check on his dad every day after work to make sure he ate, bathed, changed clothes, and went to bed at night. In early 2022, he made the difficult decision as Jesse's caregiver to move him into a senior living home where he could get the care he needs 24-7. He had primary and secondary grief happen with mom and then also experiencing that with dad. And so he would benefit greatly from talking his feelings out with a therapist and understanding which of those reactions of depression and guilt are normal and appropriate responses to grief? That is Jessica Reed, my therapist. I provide psychotherapy to um, families, couples, and children um, from a holistic perspective. 
as a licensed professional counselor, we do a little bit um, beyond what you would consider short-term counseling. It's a little bit more long-term where you can look at all parts of the person and different things that are contributing to um, just day-to-day -day stressors or symptoms that are common around depression, anxiety, um, chronic trauma, stress, and things of that nature. I got James's permission to play a few of his interview clips for Jessica to get her take on his situation. We'll hear from her and James's thoughts about therapy after the break. So I'm a small business owner, and one thing I love doing is supporting other small business owners who are using their creativity and their gifts to help people. And the business I want to tell you about today is Refuge Images. Hi, my name is Liz Lee, and I am the founder and lead photographer of Refuge Images. All right, so tell me about your business and what kind of photography you do. So I'm a photographer based in Memphis, Tennessee, and my goal is to help people memorialize important moments in their lives. So if that is a moment of importance in your family or a moment of significance in your business or some creative endeavor that will help you further whatever your goals are, it's my goal and really my joy to help you capture that through the camera. I do portraits, I do headshots, I do um, things for corporate, I've worked with influencers, I've worked with authors, I've worked with small nonprofit organizations, both locally and a little bit further away. I have done work with religious organizations. Really, like I said, my goal is just to help whoever is in front of me capture the vision that they have to help them meet their goals. And if people wanna learn more about your business and see some of your work, what do they need to do? You can follow me on Instagram at Refuge Images. That's R-E-F-U-G-E. I-M-G-E-S, so no A in the images. You can follow me there, or you can go to my website, which is refugeimages.co. Some days you would come over there to be spotless. Then some days you come over there, he's, he's doing God knows what. I was kind of making some notes here. Caregivers can experience a range of emotions, sadness, anger, guilt, anxiety, gr anticipatory grief, especially in a case- Before we move forward in this conversation with Jessica about what James had to say, let's get this disclaimer out there. This discussion is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for personalized professional counseling. Please consult with the appropriate professionals who can assist you with your specific circumstances. So I work with a lot of helping professionals. So people, nurses, doctors, EMT. So they see a lot of this and they play the role of caregiver a lot. And then I've also worked with young and older clients who have had to become a caregiver for another member of the family, whether that's a younger sibling, an older parent, a cousin. It's really intergenerational where the caregiving really can be any age. With some of the things that you discuss with them and navigate with them, can you talk about some of the common things you see? Yeah, I think the hardest or most challenging part is accepting the role, right? So we'll do it, but we'll kind of do it from this depersonalized space. But really owning that role 
it's a challenge, but once I, I've been able to see clients kind of work through that and you get this place of acceptance that this is what's expected of me, things fall a little bit more into place and you can see like less stress because it's, you're kind of like not all over the place. It gets really refined when you're able to say, okay, so this is what's needed of me. This is what I'm going to need to be able to do the role. And this is realistically the limits that I, I have. And so I think Always having hope and looking to the future is really, really helpful, but also thinking about your support system. So if you're a caregiver, you have a really unique role that comes with a lot of stress because you are literally thinking about yourself and another person in the same way. And if you haven't done that and you want to get it right because you love the person that you're caregiving for, it can be really distressing to experience. Okay. Cause yeah, I was going to ask about for people who don't have a support system, like in the case of with James, his he has siblings, but they're not in a place to be able to help him. And so Mm -hmm. some of the things that he, some of the feelings that he experiences because of that, there's in addition to grief because of the condition of his dad he also Mm -hmm. experiences anger because he feels like I'm doing this by myself and I don't I don't have any support and so for people who are dealing with that how would you talk to them about that I think finding a support group being a part of the treatment team so if you're a caregiver, you really need to be in the ins and outs of what's happening with the person you're caring for. But oftentimes what I have found in my, I think, personal and professional experience, when people say they are the only one, that's an expectation they put on themselves. They haven't really oftentimes set a boundary and say, this is what I can do and I need your help because they feel like, oh, they're not going to do it. Or I've asked them in the past and they didn't do it for something completely different Or there's this expectation that like, yeah, I'm the only child, so I can't call on anyone else. So being a part of the treatment team is a good mindset to know that there's a team of people in support that's needed to get this done. It's not a one man show. And so what about those moments when there are things that only you can do? Like you can rely on a support network in, in some or in a lot of cases, but for those those moments when it is really just me and I have to do this, do this part by myself. How do you, how would you recommend helping someone? Yeah, I would recommend taking those things that feel really big, breaking them down into smaller steps, being really gracious and compassionate with yourself and knowing that knowing your limits is going to help you feel more productive, which is going to help you stay motivated, engaging in some pre-care. So self-care is like the things we do day to day, but pre-care is this idea of I'm anticipating a stressful season or a busier season or a time in my life that requires something different than I usually do. And I need a specific plan for that time. So if I know there are certain things that are just for me, then that that means I'm probably gonna need to add some things into my routine, wellness, or my own self-care to be able to maintain this. Describe your mental state, your emotional state. What What is happening with you? Um... I think I'm fighting depression. I think I am. Mm-mm. I'm a bit emotional at times. I stay working, trying to keep my mind occupied. You know, I feel somewhat of a failure when it comes to him because I couldn't. One of the few things in my life that I couldn't. Hey, I can build a skyscraper, but I can't take care of my dad. I couldn't. I couldn't stop working long enough or stop doing what I needed to do to take care of him. And, I, you know, somehow when all this was going on, I thought maybe it was something somewhere along the line. I could do something to reverse this stuff that was going on. 
I have a quick question. Did you ever ask a doctor or like a specialist if, if there was anything that you could do? Yeah. And what did they say? He said that. So even knowing that the doctor said that, that, that doesn't. That doesn't. It doesn't change, you know, when I'm a fixer. That was the thing that really stuck out to me was how the guilt that he felt because of an illness that he cannot control. And the parts that he could control, he did. And he did well. He probably did it the best he could. But for him, sounds like in that moment of working through that or, or rethinking about it, it wasn't enough because it didn't help dad. And again, that's why I'm saying like kind of thinking about the outlook, it may have helped that day, right? It, it wasn't in vain. But when you, when he sums it up, his outlook of that is like all of that's in vain because you know, he didn't get better. Like I said, Jessica is my therapist. So I've been through the difficult but rewarding process of working through how I think and feel about things and learning new ways to think and move forward. So I was interested to know what James thought about therapy. Have you thought about talking to anybody? Like you said that you feel like you're fighting depression. Have you thought about talking to anybody yeah, about it? I, I think, I, you know, I keep putting it off saying I got to get time to <laughs> you know, kind of like, you know, things. I'm, I'm hoping it go away. I'm hoping I find some kind of peace with it and I make some kind of peace with it um, because I don't want to tear me apart either. I have a fear of, of me getting Alzheimer's. So if you, if you could or if you eventually decide to talk to somebody about like the thoughts and feelings that you are having to process and navigate, or in your case, like you said, suppress or fight, what what would be the things that you need support with or that you would want to talk about? My guilt registers in with me. It goes hand in hand. It kind of, it's like, you know, uh, pain in my heart when it comes to it. I mean, I literally, you know, I, I try to feel like, how do you, take that feeling out of there and for some reason i can't i've tried i tried all the positive stuff and positive thinking i could i really have um hey i'm doing this for the right reason hey i'm doing you know but there's still a guilt and and, and a hurt in there that when i think about it, this is my dad a part of what he probably could benefit from is just some active ways to find peace making it go away one isn't possible because it's there. And the only way to kind of see an emotion through is to like examine it, look at it, befriend it, understand what it means for you and go through it. So I think we would probably start with getting him safely able to look at the guilt and put that in the self lane of what that means for him. Like, what is he saying about himself? Like if we were expressing that guilt and giving it words, but also probably some cognitive behavioral therapy where you look at thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and how they're all connected and how we can do some cognitive restructuring, some reframing, some different forms of self-talk and cognitions that will help him see that in a more accurate and realistic way. Because there are a lot of cognitive distortions, appropriately so, that make it hard for him to see value in what he did, but also see this differently than just a neg you know, a lot of negative associations. And so even in just talking about it, research sh shows that 
when you talk, you release negative associations and stress with things, even if they're not fixed in the moment. So I think helping him see that and having a consistent way of talking through it means he's not holding it in, he's getting it out. So he'd probably be someone you want to see kind of frequently starting off, letting him air out a lot of that that's been stored and then doing some really practical tools to help him navigate his fears around, you know, it happening to him and reliving that experience. So the key takeaways from this conversation for me are that it will be difficult mentally and emotionally to adjust to becoming a caregiver, but it is possible. Also, we have to ask for help. I know it's hard, but getting connected to a support network is key. Not only for the person you're caring for, it's also important for you as the caregiver. And that leads to my final takeaway. Reject the idea that neglecting yourself is the right thing to do in service to others. Even in a situation like James's, your self-care, things like boundary setting, being honest with yourself about your bandwidth, and talking to a licensed therapist, those things are still important. I want to thank James for sharing his story and Jessica for giving us some things to think about, even those of us who are not caregivers. So that's it for this episode of All This Stuff I Have to Do. If anything that we talked about resonated with you, again, Jessica Reed is a licensed professional counselor and you can visit her website if you're interested in speaking with her or learning more about her services. The website is reedcounseling.com. That's R-E-E-D counseling.com. And also don't forget to check out Refuge Images for your photography needs. The website is refugeimages.co and these links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening.